Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Carl Carlson. And this is Fred Schenkler. Hey, Carl. Hey, Fred. You know, I've been thinking about um, some things. Uh, the, the, you know, I've had a really wonderful career and I've enjoyed reliability so much and I still do. Um, so I was reflecting on some some of the bigger picture things and I thought it'd be fun to talk about what are some of the biggest reliability mistakes that we've seen in our years. And, you know, not as a formal white paper type of thing or where we're trying to analyze it uh, deeply, but just reflecting on uh, and maybe helping some uh, listeners to uh, not to avoid some of the mistakes that we've seen and or they could be mistakes we've made. Uh, so <laughs> nothing prepared particularly, but just uh, fun to reflect on. And I'll start I'll start off with one. OK, just for fun, um, because this one jumped right up at me when I was thinking about it. Years back, I won't mention the name of the company, but it was a, a green energy um, system. And this green energy system involved uh, energy inputs that would then be stored in a, a bladder type arrangement, a, a basically a vessel mm-hmm. would store the energy. And then the next, when you needed that energy, then it would release the energy. And so rather than just let the energy dissipate into the air, it actually stored it and used it. It was a really interesting creative device. And I won't go into more detail than that because so that it it sort of protects the the company because there's a mistake involved here. (laughs) And talking about biggest reliability mistakes. And the mistake is not having a safety margin. So what they did is they designed this vessel to have a maximum PSI of... X. And then that maximum PSI didn't have a safety margin. So they, they, they knew they would achieve this or they would see this maximum PSI pressure mm-hmm. in service, but they didn't put a safety margin on it. So sure enough, when they built their first prototype, and it's a large system, the, the next thing I heard was an explosion <laughs> when the vessel blew up. Because it got to that maximum PSI and, and one, then it exploded. Yeah, one bit above it, and it's like, all right, I'm done. Yeah, well, and, and plus variation. Yeah, you know that it might not be the real maximum; it might be something a little bit less because there's always variation. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the lessons that that embedded with me really uh, strongly and loudly, if you will, um, is that you always need a safety margin, and and what you need depends on your application and. And, and the safety implications and things, but you always need a safety margin. So that was my, that's my first story about a big reliability mistake. Yeah, yeah I, I'm thinking of one that, of the first one that came to my mind when you mentioned this was I ran into this group that um, they, they wanted our help because they felt like the reliability work they were doing was costing too much and not giving them much of a result. And when I got to know what they were doing is they, every time they ran into a field problem, they would add a test to verify that any, that current design and any future designs would not have that particular issue or problem, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And so 
talk about driving through the rearview mirror kind of thing is when I ran into them, they had over 50 discrete tests that they were trying to run as many prototypes as they could through quick enough so that they could get to product launch. Wow. And they were just, just overwhelmed with all these tests and all the time it took and they were complaining and they had, they were building more lab space and they were spending all this money on extra prototypes to help speed it up. And they're hiring technicians and they were just going, this is getting out of control. And Mm -hmm. so their presenting problem was how can we get through all these tests more efficiently? (laughs) <laughs> like, well, well, how about not doing them? Yes. <laughs> you know, kind of, because, of course, the, the the data they were getting out of these things were, they it was rare that they even got close to a failure on any of these things because the culture, I think it was, in, you know, it was the intent was you don't want to be the engineer that, caused a program delay because your part of the design failed in these last minute gauntlet of tests they were running. So it was inadvertent, I think, yet the culture was punishing to an engineer that caused a delay. It was embarrassing and, 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 and probably a bit worse. And so all the engineers basically told me that they knew which tests applied to what part of the design they were working on. And they made doubly sure they didn't fail that test because they didn't wow. want to face that, that backlash. It reminds me of an educational uh, uh, stories that I've heard about uh, where uh, some schools get into teaching people how to pass the test mm-hmm. so they can get the funding. Yeah. And so, I mean, the, if the intent was to not repeat prior mistakes they didn't need they they achieved that it wasn't a typically or a terribly healthy environment uh for doing that yet they didn't cause program delays and everything else now the mistake part was they still had field problems and they still had to add more tests and that's where they were seeing you know there's something not right in the system and it was stepping back and looking at it was well, you're not look. You're you're always looking for how to avoid past problems, and this is that's that has merit. Yet that's avoids then you're shielded from or blinded to. Well, what are the new failures? So you know things like FMEA and and halt and and just anticipating where's the new weaknesses or where's the least margin or where's the big trade offs. All of the different things we typically do to proactively go after these things. They didn't have time for that. They were too busy running all these tests on the stuff they already had solved by, by a huge margin. And it's and it's not the only company I've run into a similar circumstance where they're, t- they're too busy to see the process that they've created. And of course, it wasn't deliberate. It was built one idea at a time. So let's make sure we don't do that again. So they add one test. But yeah. Then over a number of years, it, it just, it was, that was their, that was their culture. That's what they did. That was the reliability program. And so it wasn't deliberately created. It grew about them and then they go, oh, this isn't sustainable. That's very interesting. And I, and I agree with your, your analysis. You have to do both. Yeah. You, you have to, first of all, anticipate problems and then test to ensure you don't have the anticipated problems, but that would be on something new. But then you have past problems, 
and you sure don't want to repeat them. Well, I'm going to jump in there. There's another, uh, I think, uh, a problem or mistake that companies make. And I ran into this question just a couple of weeks ago. Was is this? She's a student, and and sent me an email saying, "Well, you mean there's more to reliability than just doing testing?" And huh. I was like, "Yes, <laughs> there's a yes. lot more. Testing's <laughs> kind of the line of last resort here. Is it's expensive, it's time consuming, it you know all these other things, and it's fraught with measurement error and all the other issues that we have. If you can get an adequate answer without testing, do it." And it's for all kinds of reasons. And it was this misperception. I don't know that it's necessarily a mistake, yet I've run into companies like this one that I just talked about that they equated reliability with testing, and that was it, as opposed to design guidelines and you know lessons learned and, and risk assessments and all the other stuff we can do and, and understanding variability as, as you know the, the safety one you talked about. I think the biggest mistake I run into, and it's more than once, is that, well, reliability is just testing, right? I, uh, no. No. I mean, <laughs> I agree with you that it absolutely isn't just testing. It's prevention. I remember that uh, paradigm at uh, General Motors where we, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, worked to change the paradigm from reactive to proactive mm -hmm. to trying to prevent problems rather than merely react to them. So that, that's very profound what you're saying, I think. Jim used to have a, uh, a program, and it was a very long and broad program uh, called Road to Lab to Math. And it's, it was very excellent. It was an excellent program because for a long while, we just used road testing mm -hmm. to surface problems. That's very expensive. And when you're talking prototype vehicles. Just think of the health benefits they had to pay out for for those drivers. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And then, and of course, the second step of that is lab. So then the, the next stage was to try to move to lab testing, mm -hmm. where it could be done earlier and less expensive and better reliability, uh, statistical confidence. And then the third one was math. And back in the 90s, GM was paving the way on a lot of math simulations. They had whole huge departments of people that would analytically essentially analytically test, but you're talking about something, a next step, and I completely agree, uh, which is more of the, the method approach. For instance, product characteristics, key critical characteristics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that, that uh, and FMEA and, and other techniques that aren't directly related to verifying a particular um, uh, requirement. I mean, some of them are but they're done in a way that's prevention. So I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one that so many organizations fall into the trap with is they say, Oh, well, we need to make sure that it works. And then they run into questions. And this is one I got just two days ago is, well, um, they want to, this, the organization wants to have evidence that their product will last for three years and they're planning on launching the product in six months. And this engineer has got one sample as of two days ago. And it was like, how in the world am I going to test an entire system to do this? And says, well, don't test. <laughs> you know, right. if you need to identify 
you know, what you can and can't do. And if you only have one sample and you go try to prove that it'll last, you're getting basically, and that's another whole big mistake I see is people misuse statistics. Oh man. Mm. I ran, ran into one a couple months ago that they wanted help creating an accelerated life test. And I said, all right, well, why are you doing this? And tried to talk them out of it a bunch of times. And finally they said, well, here's, if this is the mechanism, there is no model associated with it. So you, use, you can't use like the Arrhenius or something else to, to show whether or not this thing is, is reliable or not. So you need to run to failure. You need to run enough samples to failure to actually create a distribution of this thing. And a whole bunch of other details involved in it. So I laid out a, a test plan for them, but they insisted... And they wanted, they only wanted to use 20 samples because it was expensive and all kinds of other mm -hmm. reasons. And yet it was a huge deal for them to know the answer. And so, all right, well, this is kind of pushing the assumptions as far as you can get. And if this all works and all 20 samples, you know, pass, you know, survive this stress, then you have this kind of an answer. And then I learned later that they insisted on every week pulling two samples out and cross-sectioning them to see if oh. there was a problem or not. And mm -hmm. I, well, that means you're going to have one or two samples survive the, the full duration and everything else is censored earlier. So now you have absolutely no results whatsoever <laughs> from a statistics mm. point of view. And the chance of you seeing a problem given the nature of that mechanism is incredibly rare, even if every one of them had that problem. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and so right. what, what on earth are you trying to do? You know? And, and they, so they, they paid my bill, but it was like, you know, you're just not getting an answer here. So a lack of under, not just understanding, but a lack of applying a basic statistics. And yeah. we're not talking about um, PhD level, statistics at this point what, what you're describing is more of a big picture do you see that the application of statistics would be misleading if you did such and such right yeah if you're trying to identify something that's say a 10 percent defect rate and you say well that means i only need 10 samples and if one of them huh. fails then i know i've had a 10 percent problem Okay. theoretically yeah theoretically if everything was perfect and had no variability you'd be right on but let's calculate what's the chance that you randomly pick 10 samples and one of them's bad given that you have a 10% problem. And it's actually pretty low that you'll have one and fail out of 10 when you have right. a 10% problem. Right. And they're always shocked at that. And I says, it's not magic. Here's the math. Here's the derivations. Here's all this stuff. Mm -hmm. and they, they nod their head, everything else. Says, well, what happens if we only use five samples? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll pass the test, right? And I'm like, yeah. You won't you see anything. It. it won't mean anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, Make it feel good, maybe. <laughs> the, you've, you've just stimulated another one. Um, so the, this is an offshoot of what you're talking about, a misuse of statistics. I was in a company uh, consulting with them, uh, and they had a product. Again, I won't mention the company. They had a product line that was a large system, and this system was um, targeted to last 10 years roughly. Mm -hmm. And uh, parts cost, I mean, system testing was expensive. And so they decided to assume, and this, of course, the 
the hobby horse that you and I have had for years. Mm -hmm. They've decided to assume an exponential distribution because it was a large system. So that's sort of a corollary or a subset of the statistical misuse. Yep. And they said, okay, and I'm serious about this. They, I walked in there and I said, what? I said, why are you testing equivalent of one year when your product is 10 years? And they go, well, we'll just assume an exponential distribution and multiply by 10. This is a well-known company. <laughs> um, and they were serious about it. Yeah. And they were doing it. Uh, so, you know, as a listener, think about that for a minute. What would be, what's the error there? Obviously, it's an error of assuming an exponential distribution. Unless you have hard facts, but I would find it very difficult on a large system to see one year of data or accurately translate to 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm thinking, of, and I've run into that with people and they have bearings and motors and all kinds of mechanical equipment. And he says, well, how do you expect it to fail? Well, we think this, this linkage here will wear out. Well, how long do you think that before that'll happen? Oh, a couple of years. And again, it was like a ten-year system. And like, and you yeah. believe that oh testing for one year is going to give you an answer? And I, <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's a, it's astounding to me. Even if you accelerate, but then of course you're not testing to one year at that point. So it's it's fascinating. But that that's a big one that transcends all kinds of applications. Is assuming the exponential distribution. Well, there's uh, yeah, the there's that, but it's also assuming that well, we we only have what we have, so we're going to use our two or three units, and we'll do the statistical test on it, and without understanding that it's the chance that that will give you a meaningful result or a useful result is nil, essentially. How about use? I think we did a whole podcast. What do you do if you only have two or three samples? Yeah, you know, what do you do? Well, you don't do a big characterization of variability because you just don't have it and so what else can you do well there's a lot <laughs> without mm -hmm. going into it yet it i and i heard it from more than one place it's like well we want to understand we want to feel confident we want to feel good that it's working this is well if you design a test any more benign than this you know your customers better not ever use it or take it out of the box <laughs> because yeah, you don't yeah. know whether it'll work or not you know, let's let's make the test really calm. You know, uh, you got me going. I can on see this how one. these things happen. Management, maybe they've got a set of MBA um, degrees, and they say, okay, this is the amount of money we have. Therefore, this is the amount of samples we can afford, and this is the time frame that's given by marketing. Therefore, your reliability program must be, and a reliability engineer has. Two choices. They either say yes, sir, and go about it, and then generate some kind of answer, or they they characterize and say, okay, that's our budget. I'm going to do. I'll get the best information I can, but you need to be aware of the risks that you're taking on, yep. and and speak openly and accurately about the risk that's involved, and that takes a lot of uh, what's the right word? Well, comfort. Yeah, yeah, courage, gumption. It, it, yet it's it's also, and I've run into too many people that you know they, they they're gonna say, well, it's exponential. I can assume all these things, and I. <laughs> that's a fundamental mistake, and it's not just statistics either. It's it's just making assumptions. Well, we we assume that it's solder joint cracking is the problem. 
well, how about this wire over here that's getting frayed on every one of your prototypes and shorting out to the chassis? How about we think about that one over there? <laughs> like, yes. I don't know. We assume that it's always going to be solder joints, so we ignore any other problems. All right. Okay. Huh. See, there's well, a lot yeah. of work to do here. I'll throw in one more that just popped up in my head. Um, it's thinking that a predicted number is real. Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I'm sitting down. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that's a big bucket. But I remember back um, years ago, it was um, in a, one of my early vehicle programs at uh, at GM, and one of the outcomes. That this is back before I became manager of the the, the group. One of the uh, the presentations that we always had to make at the at the project team was where are we on achieving the predicted reliability? Mm -hmm. And so we will put together, you know, system reliability models that, that laid out the the series in parallel uh, uh, boxes. And then each one of them would have its predicted, the, the value that needs to be there to get the system reliability you want. So that's sort of like a apportionment at that point, right? Yeah, it's like apportionment. Okay. But then the the... The, the stretch, which I then thoroughly rejected, I just I was visceral about it. The stretch was, what do we need to do? How can we make that prediction real? And and because the prediction was based on wrong things, it was based on uh, certain handbooks that were either out of date or didn't apply. Mm -hmm. You could easily make the prediction what you wanted it to be. Yep. And and there there was that. It, I wouldn't say it's peer pressure, uh, but there was that inclination. And then I could see very clearly that that whole methodology had flaws. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, that's a whole episode in itself. But I think it'd be more like a rant. We, we'd have to yes. <laughs> change the rating on the show or something at some point. Um, no, there's plenty of ways that. And even intelligent, you know, college graduate reliability engineers, um, they might have really fell in love with a particular technique, say accelerated testing. So everything they do is accelerated testing, whether or not it's what they should be doing. Yet, I think a lot of mistakes are, I think, outlined very much as you described, is that here's the set of constraints and here's the way we've always done it. And this is, you know, it worked for us last time. Let's do it again. Um I, it makes me think of one of Chris uh, Jackson's lines is, you know, it, reliability requires you don't check your brain, your critical thinking at the door. You know, it, it mm -hmm. does require thinking and and understanding the current circumstance and constraints and, and, and then have the courage to say, hey, you know, I just can't get here from there uh, with what we've got or where we're going or what this program is. It does take a lot to not fall into one or more of these uh, traps, as as I would call it, or logical flaws. Um, and the hard part, and to be honest, with the most of the organizations I've run into, is that the it wasn't like they set out to just ignore the rules or make broad assumptions or to just yeah we know it's not good but that's what we're going to do. It it is one little piece at a time, one small step at a time, and then they find that they've got this untenable system that they're trying to make work and yep well well described if you're a listener here and you know of some uh, mistakes that you've seen because fred and i are only talking about a few um we'd love to hear from you 
on this because the we could maybe get a publication at some point called the the top 10 reliability mistakes or something. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like an article idea or a webinar idea. Yep. <laughs> yeah. No, it'd be excellent. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. You can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us there. Carl and I and the other hosts of the show are available through LinkedIn and our about pages. So there's plenty of ways for you to get in touch. And I'm sure we missed whole classes of mistakes. That might be our mistake of trying to limit ourselves <laughs> to just 20 minutes or so. Uh, so please do send them over. And, you know, Carl, it might actually make a good idea for a webinar. That might be a fun discussion. It might be a great discussion. That would be enjoyable. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Carl. Thanks for bringing it up. At first, I thought this was going to be a mistake, but uh, you <laughs> proved me wrong. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Fred. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.